Now at the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store, you can get the brand new Spring Spectacular Collection. Designed by yours truly, Omar Moore. If you like t-shirts, sweatshirts, mouse pads, or pens, or anything else that you might use or wear on a pretty much daily basis, please come on down to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store at the-politocrat.myshopify.com or you can go to the podcast website at thepolitocrat.com and scroll down on the homepage to find the online store. I'm firmly, firmly confident that you'll like what you see. So, please, take a look and buy some of these wonderful items you will see. Thank you very much for your support. Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Thursday, February the 4th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, a conversation with Dr. Professor Beata Kampmann. Dr. Kampmann is the director of the Vaccine Centre at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She is a paediatrician and she also works in London and on the African continent in the Western African country of the Gambia. My conversation with her about children and coronavirus vaccinations and her work in the Gambia and what we really need to know right now about the vaccines and lots more. All of that coming up next. With me right now on this edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast is Professor Beata Kampmann. She is the Professor of Pediatric Infection and Immunity and the Director of the Vaccine Centre in London at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I want to talk to her today about a number of topics regarding the vaccination process in the Gambia, where she does a lot of her work and does a lot of work with children there on the African continent, and talk about coronavirus and things related to the vaccinations. So with that said, a warm welcome to Professor Beata Kappen. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much, Omar, and you can drop the professor. It's very nice to be on your podcast and tell you a little bit about the area of work that I do, which is in pediatric infectious diseases in the context of global health. And that's why I work both in London and in the Gambia at the MRC unit. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Beata, for for that. Um, I did want to briefly talk about the Gambia, just to say a few things for the sake of the audience uh, listening and watching this. Um, the Gambia is a nation, one of the smallest nations on the African continent. It's located in the western part of the continent, and it's surrounded by the country of Senegal. 
Um, it gained its independence after colonization from the United Kingdom, gained its independence in 1965, had a legendary figure as its leader. And, and that person, I think his name is Dara Juara. I'm not quite sure of the pronunciation, but he became the first president of uh, the Gambia uh, in the early 1970s. Um, there had been a numerous, numerous coup attempts, and one of them succeeded in 1994, uh, which brought along a very violent and brutal dictator. And he was finally defeated after much bloodshed and consternation in the country, was defeated in the, I believe in 2016, if not a little earlier. Um, and that was not without a struggle uh, in an election process, because what eventually happened is that power had to basically be, his exit had to be negotiated. So there was a lot of violence around that time. We, uh, in the Gambia now, there's a truth and reconciliation and reparations commission that's been going on for the last two years in the country to revisit and address these crimes and these horrors. So that's just an overlay at this point, a very, very brief overlay um, from the political perspective. Um, Beata, your work there, and you, uh, I want to talk about your work at uh, the uh, LA, uh, LH, uh, LHS, um, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. But can you add something, anything you'd like to add on uh, in terms of what the kind of work you do in the Gambia, the state of the country as you see it, and the kinds of work that you do there? Yes, well, thank you for putting the Gambia on the map. As you say, it's Africa's smallest country. It's got 2.3 million people, a very young population, a very vibrant population, and a population that has suffered for many years from you know, a lack of uh, secondary education and serious, you know, potentially preventable hardship, infectious diseases, etc. So it's really still a very poor country in Africa. So the work I do here is with the Medical Research Council unit um, that is now a part of the London School. It has been here for 70 years, so it has actually seen quite a lot of the political backs and forth of uh, what's happened in the country, and it has had to work through some of these challenges, um, both politically as well as you know the pending Ebola crisis a few years ago, etc. So. You know, we are a, we are the largest uh, one of the largest overseas investments uh, for medical research of the British government, and uh, the, we have some core support. And we have we are we used to be the largest employer in the Gambia. In fact, that is now the telecommunications industry. But we have a staff of over a thousand people, primarily people from the Gambia and from West Africa. We train uh, African scientists. We train, uh, we do a lot of, of work in public health in the Gambia together with the government on vaccine prevention, on malaria elimination, on uh, nutrition. On uh, So I lead the vaccines and immunity work and there are uh, disease control elimination streams of work and nutrition streams of work. And we're also now just looking at the sort of more comprehensive uh, impact of the environment on health and our relationships with the national uh, these control programs are very close because ultimately what we do in science in the lab needs to find its way into the policies in the country to have any traction at all. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm fascinated by the work you do. It's such important work and it, it's just very important to 
have an understanding of just what goes into what you do and how it impacts the people that you you work with. And you mentioned your work as a, as a pediatrician uh, when we speak, we've spoken about it. And one of the things that I want to start with actually is the children and um, how is it going there? Because I understand, and you can correct me, please, Beata, that the rates of infection in several African countries, particularly with this now South African variant that's come, um, is quite high. And I wanted to ask you about how children are affected and what you are seeing there in the Gambia with children that you're working with. Yeah, so I'm fortunate to have a view both from the UK as well as from the Gambia because I work as a pediatrician also in a large teaching hospital in, in London. And, you know, the good thing to say is that much unlike most other infectious diseases, COVID doesn't seem to cause as much children as, as early adults. You know, we know from, from infectious diseases that uh, it's often the small children who suffer the most. We know that from diarrhea, from pneumonia, from malaria. And, and you know, this uh, virus is quite different. And why children are suffering less is actually a bit of a mystery. So if you look at all the, the risk factors for people dying from COVID, you know, they're mainly elderly people, people with other cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, hypertension, all of those risk factors. The children are pretty well. And also to our, you know, big relief here in the Gambia, we have had many people infected, but also amongst our staff because the virus is going around the community. But we had, and we've had some deaths, but we haven't had any of the number of deaths that we were really worried about. So it's a bit different from South Africa, where they had a lot of deaths and the run into the hospitals and the overcrowding in hospitals for people with COVID in our setting has been, you know, not as bad as we would have feared when this first started in April and we'd made all sorts of provisions to try and help mitigate this uh, onslaught. Wow. Um, I, that That's information that I actually wasn't expecting you to say about the fact that oh. children is less, it's less of a risk for children there. That Wow. Yeah, that's right. That's why, you know, the, the whole discussion around uh, schools, for example, you know, because education is so important. And if children had been badly affected and there were major factors of transmission in the, in the communities, we would have had to close schools. And we've done so in England, but we haven't closed the schools uh, so much here in Africa. And uh, I think, you know, it might be that children, because they're so exposed to so many infectious diseases early in life, that they have a different type of immunity to fight this off, which, um, you know, they just don't seem to be getting the sick, which is why children are also not a target for the COVID vaccines right now. Mm. You have anticipated something that I was going to ask you. <laughs> How clairvoyant of you, Beata. <laughs> no, no, you know, when we talk about vaccines, we always talk about children, right? Because when you're born, you get your first jabs. And then as you go through up to school age, you have had all these vaccines, which are life-saving. They prevent pneumonia, meningitis, diarrhea. They save more life. Or, you know, apart from clean water, they're the most important uh, intervention in public health ever created. So I'm a huge fan of vaccines, of course. But um, for COVID, we, um, we don't need to prioritize the children at this rate because they don't get that sick. So we are prioritizing the vulnerable people and the healthcare workers to getting the vaccines. But we haven't seen any of them here. Mm. Now, when you say we haven't seen any of them here, 
um, for the sake of clarification for my own, when you say them, what are you referring to there, Beata? The vaccines. I'm talking the vaccines. I'm talking about the vaccines. So there are no COVID vaccines in the Gambia. There are hardly any COVID vaccines in Africa. And it's a big deal now because we are in this phase of huge vaccine nationalism where uh, the high-income countries have ordered literally all the stocks that there are. And uh, there is an international initiative, you might have heard about it, it's called COVAX, which is trying to get access to COVID vaccines for the world and uh, promising to guarantee, uh, I think it's 2.1 billion doses of vaccines by the end of 2021 to vaccinate the 20% most vulnerable people across the globe. And that's a hard you know, bargain against the countries uh, that are actually wanting to literally vaccinate everybody in their community. And, you know, the supplies are not unlimited. So that's, that's where we're having a real bottleneck right now. And and what you've just said, Beat, is something that I, I, I wanted to ask you about too, is just the way that vaccines are consolidated in richer countries. And in many of the poorer countries, only 10% of their populations in each of the nations that are poorer are even getting the vaccine at all to begin with, let alone how many of them are actually going to receive actual jabs is a whole nother story. And, and you should point out this nationalism um, or, you know, this this favoritism of rich countries versus against poorer countries is a real, well, I'm mentioning that, is a real issue. It's a phenomenal, and there's a vaccine movement. I've had conversations with people on this podcast previously, including uh, another doctor who talked about the people's vaccine movement, uh, a people's vaccine movement in the United States. And I think in other countries, the Vaccine Alliance, you may may or may not be familiar with them, who've been advocating for the same kinds of things you mentioned with the organization you talked about. Yeah, so, you're yeah. right. And, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think we have learned quite a lot. Oh, you cut out there for a moment, uh, Beata. I'm sorry. Really the first, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Can Am you I repeat? Back? Can you repeat Am that? Back? Yes, you're back. Can Can you repeat that? Because it just yeah. got muffled. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So I think we started to learn about the the absolute requirement for a global attitude to vaccination through the Ebola crisis, because that was the first time that uh, you know there was a a pathogen, or not the first time, but it became obvious that there was a pathogen of you know pandemic proportion potentially that uh, could, which had a high fatality rate. And literally we had, you know, candidates of vaccines sitting on shelves in universities and in companies that were never developed to the degree where they could have quickly been deployed and cut out, you know, all the death and suffering that we've seen in West Africa. And the, there was an international movement called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness that was founded uh, 2017 or so. Uh, uh, to make sure that this could not happen again and that there are funds put together that vaccines get, you know, mobilized more quickly and put through trials so they could be made available for people anywhere around the world. So CEPI galvanized quite, quite some of that process. And the other part that's obviously important is WHO uh, initiative, but also GAVI, which is the Global Alliance for Vaccines, which is the sort of... Um, umbrella to uh, provide vaccines for low and middle income countries on a on a sort of advanced market uh, commissioning um, uh, platform and these three organized three organizations have come together and built this covax initiative for access to vaccines and also to therapeutics it's called the uh, accelerator the covid uh, treatment accelerator and the covid vaccine accelerator 
So those people have tried to um, make sure that rich countries also make a contribution like they do to Gavi. Because, you know, if you look at the history of, of vaccine availability internationally, the high income countries were usually the places where the vaccines were developed and then they were implemented. And sometimes there's been a 10 year delay between, you know, you and I having a vaccine, let's say against meningitis and people in Africa seeing that vaccine. And it's only been through living in a much more global context that it's kind of finally clicked that we need to be able to move these products much more quickly into the places where they're really needed. And I think there's good drive behind that. But also, you know, every single country is trying to score points at the moment with their electoral, uh, electorals to, to kind of show that they've bought the most doses and they've given them the quickest and all the shabang, you know. It's, it's been the case in the US, it's the case in Israel, it's the case in the, in the UK. You know, the EU is pulling out their hair because they are behind. And, you know, this is just the politicization of the vaccine suppliers is really quite annoying. But, you know, we are where we are because a lot of money has gone into the vaccine development as well. And people want to see the return on their investment for their taxpayers, right, obviously. And I'm glad you mentioned that because it's something that is abundantly clear to me. And I'm sure to people watching and listening, abundantly clear that there's the economics and the money, the politics that goes into this. People beating their chests, you know, talking about, oh, we've got all these doses. And, and, and some of these countries that you just mentioned, in fact, nearly all of those countries you just mentioned, certainly the native UK for me, uh, being from there, um, is they've got surpluses upon surpluses. And you're thinking about the African continent saying, my goodness me, you know, there are people here who who need this, who would benefit from this in so many incredible ways. And you've got countries of excess. They could probably even vaccinate the continent or many countries in the Africa. I mean, goodness knows how many times over population wise. I mean, they have uh, made pledges. So the COVAX initiative has uh, united um, the high income countries to also make donations, either in terms of the surplus of their vaccines or in terms of money. What is the real bottleneck at the moment is the vaccine supply, because we've only got a few of them licensed. And, uh, you know, they to make vaccines at this rate with that speed and that quantity as we need them now, it's not that straightforward because they need to be, you know, it's a new product, it's a new platform. You know, there are certain vaccines which are not going to be that easy to administer in Africa like the first vaccine license is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. It's a great vaccine, but it needs to be kept at minus 80 degrees, right? So, you know, to run a fridge in this country is a challenge, never mind running under minus 80 freezer and going out to some rural area with a boat or something to give that to people. I mean, just imagine, right? So there are some products which will be easier. Yes. Uh, you... so the Serum Institute in India, right. like maybe you should give the supply. Right. Yeah, I know that the, the technology um, um, sometimes breaks up. But of course, that we are <laughs> we are being held hostage by it, even though the conversation has been good. Um, sometimes we, we just have cut out points, which which, of course, we can't help. So I, I know that people listening and watching could underst will understand. Um, but you talked about India. I, that's the last portion I heard. Um, if I can ask you to repeat that again, please, Beata. Sure, of course. I, I was also talking about the fact that not all vaccines are that easily administrable in the in the low income setting. So did you get that one? About no, I actually did. Nice. Okay, let me let me maybe say that again. So 
So the, the bottleneck is the supply and the, um, the platforms on which these vaccines are made are not all the same. And not all of the vaccines are going to be easily uh, amenable to distribution worldwide. So for example, the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines are having to be kept at minus 80 degrees oh, yes. in a freezer. Uh, and, and that's really difficult to administer in a low income setting because we're just happy to have a fridge, right? Not right. even a minus eight freezer with consistent electricity, right? So you got that. Right. So yes. um, the, the place that is going to make a major contribution to the vaccine delivery for low and middle income countries, I believe is India, because the Serum Institute in India is already supplying, I think about two thirds of all childhood vaccines. So um, there is already a very established uh, route of, you know, communication with immunization programs worldwide. And they're all now making huge quantities of uh, COVID vaccines. Terrific. That's really good news. Um, that's really encouraging. And uh, I, that that is exactly the kinds of things that we need to see a lot more of. Um, mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I wanted to turn my attention the last few minutes um, to these vaccines. Now, of course, you've pointed out that the vaccine really isn't present on the African continent at all. Um, and you've mentioned one of the vaccines, and I don't know how much uh, you would like to say about these vaccines in particular or not, and I completely understand. You mentioned the uh, Pfizer vaccine, BioNTech. There's the, uh, there's the one, the, the Oxford AstraZeneca one. There is the Moderna one that I think you cited as well. Um, what is the information you have in your research on the effectiveness of these vaccines? Which ones people should take? Um, what are the advantages and disadvantages? Absolutely. So if you want a really big deep dive on this, we have got a fantastic website at the Vaccine Center. Now you're allowing me to do this plug, which has actually listed all the vaccines that are in clinical trials and their results and how they're being rolled out across. So people can look at the vaccine center and the, what's called the vaccine tracker uh, if people really want to see the comparisons between them. And we've just put the data there. We're not saying this is better than that, et cetera, because it's not always comparable. But the bottom line is that all the vaccines that are currently uh, approved or licensed, they're all good to combat COVID. So if you were offered any of them, you should have them. And there isn't a question of you should be having this one or that one. It's uh, they all much exceeded the expectations of the 50% efficacy, which was the target set for um, a vaccine that the FDA, for example, would be happy to have. So most of them are like above 80%. Some are maybe in the 90%, but also, you know, we haven't really tried you know, them in all age groups, etc. So I think they're all quite comparable. And I don't think it's too useful to say, okay, well, that one is 5% better. And the, the confidence intervals around this are quite broad, but they're all highly effective. And as far as we have seen, they're all safe. So this is a really good news and very a triumph of the science. So I wouldn't trade one off against the other. There is feasibility. So um, just to talk a little bit on the, on the differences between them, right? Because they're, they're all the ones that are currently approved are all literally new technology platforms, which is very exciting for a scientist like me. It doesn't really mean much to the people who are gonna have to just have them in their arm, but there are these new RNA vaccines. So they're like, uh, you can just give the genetic code and your own body 
makes the literally the the, the antigen that the the immune system will have to um, uh, fight against in your own cells. So it's like having your own factory. Uh, so RNA is um, Moderna and Pfizer. Then you have the vector vaccines, which use like an attenuated vector from either a cold vector or a chimpanzee vector. It doesn't cause any disease in your own body to give the information for the spike protein, which is the main antigenic target for the COVID virus to the body. And again, it's like a Trojan horse. So there's AstraZeneca and there is J&J. Um, and then you have the Novavax vaccine, which is uh, based on nanoparticles, so also a new technology. The Russian vaccine is also a vector vaccine. And then the Chinese people have, the China, China, there are three or four candidates that have come through, uh, which we haven't yet seen the data published, but uh, they are relying on protein. So, you know, there are various approaches. They mainly all go for what's called the spike protein of the virus, so that your immune system sees that spike protein without making anyone sick, without anything going to your genetic code or whatever. We really have to dispel these myths about it because that's all nonsense. And your immune system can see it and make the antibody. And uh, how long they will last for, we don't know. So I think it's likely that we'll have to have the vaccines repeatedly. And it's also likely we have to adapt them because these new variants are currently giving us a little bit of a headache because the virus is very, very smart and it escapes in uh, its mutations, uh, some of the pressure that is put on from the vaccines. No, that I, yeah, that, that's, <laughs> I, I love that. That was terrific. The only thing is when you talked about Moderna and Pfizer and you were describing the kind of vaccine it was, I'm afraid we, we, we lost you again. You cut out a bit. Can you, if you don't mind, repeat that? Okay. Thank you. No, no, sure. So, so those are, they're called, um, uh, the RNA vaccines, and it's almost like you send your cells a text message that your cells are to produce a particular protein, rather than, you know, it's like the code is being sent rather than any particular product. So you send the genetic information in terms of RNA to your cells that then can make this protein that your immune system can recognize and make the antibody without having, you know, any virus in your body, etc. So that's the principle of the what's called plug and play. And you can adapt that quite quickly because if you have uh, different genomic information from the virus, you could retweak it, make sure it also works for the variants. And that's very promising. That's really great. And one thing I wanted to ask you in conjunction with what you've said, there is a great deal, and you pointed out this when you talked about the genetic code and misinformation and lies, flat out lies being told about vaccines. And I really don't want to wade into the anti-vaxxer territory because I don't want to dignify it, but it is a problem. And that's all I'm going to mention about that particular entity. But what I do want to ask yeah. you is about the specifics about how this vaccine works. And uh, because let me just say this, and then maybe you can, you can give me your feedback on this. Yeah. This vaccine, any of these vaccines are designed to protect the person who may get the virus or who may be exposed to it. And if they do get it, their side effects or the sickness will be less. Is that correct? And also, it's not something that guarantees that people can't, who get the vaccine, there's no guarantee that the people who get the vaccine 
won't transmit the virus to someone else. Can you answer those, please, and tell me if, if I've got any of that correct or wrong? Yeah, yeah, I know you're completely on the right track there. So um, the way we uh, deal with infectious diseases, these viruses in our body, is like through two parts of the immune system. One is antibody, and you, what you get is literally a shield. So as soon as you see the real thing, your body is already attuned to hitting that on the head very, very quickly. And then you don't get to the point where it makes you really sick. It doesn't mean, so that's why, you know, the vaccines are preventing deaths and people going onto ventilators and flooding into hospitals. So that's the first thing we need to achieve because that's the really tragic part, right? Because, you know, having a bit of a runny nose is no big deal, right? But uh, to be on a ventilator in a hospital is a very big deal. And, you know, in the UK, we still have 1,300 deaths a day at the moment. So despite of people having started to be vaccinated, but it's coming down in Israel, we've seen the success already. It's come down considerably in their population that has had the vaccine. So it definitely works against severe disease and death. So that's a given. No. Getting very severe disease. Um, can you still hear me? Um, after you said that's a given, it just cut out. Now yeah. I can hear you, but you, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now we come to the transmission bit, right? So um, usually, if you have, in order to get very sick, you need to really have quite a lot of virus in your body. But if you can, oops, if you cannot multiply your virus because the antibody is already attacking it, then you will have less virus to give away as well. So the, it looks like as if at least 50% of the transmission is cut through, cut out with the vaccines, which is good news for overall protection. But we have very limited data on that at the moment because what you would have to do to establish that is you would literally, everybody who's had the vaccine would have to have their nose swapped like twice a week or so in an environment where there's still a lot of virus around. And only then could you be certain if you've observed a lot of people who had their noses swapped after the, they had the vaccine compared to people who had their noses swapped when they didn't have the vaccine, right? And then you could look at how much of the transmission is in the people who had the vaccine compared to the ones who didn't have the vaccine. But you need a fairly large number of people to do these sorts of studies. And the, the results are just coming through because most of the vaccine trials didn't bother with this because it's all cumbersome and it costs more money and it keeps you, you know, keeps, you don't need it to have your vaccine license, right? But it's good for science. And now we know that probably transmission is down at least 50%. So the bit we need to get to is that we can say with confidence that the people who had the vaccine, if you meet another person who had also had the vaccine, that you're probably at extremely low risk to do any harm to each other. But until we're absolutely certain about that, we need to just keep the masks on because the other idea about the vaccination is also you drive down the overall number of viruses that are going around the community. So you need to always have in the back of your mind the, what we call the epidemiological framework. So if there's tons and tons of virus around, the chances of you picking someone up in your nose is still relatively high. And then even if you have a 50% chance to give it to someone, it's still a significant chance, right? Once all that virus has been really, really low, your probability of meeting that virus is so much reduced that the overall risk of passing it on to someone else is also much reduced. So until we get to the point where the virus circulating in our environment is very low, we have to be careful. 
and we need to wait a little bit longer for the results. And, you know, we just have to keep the masks on for a little bit longer. You know, just to give you an example, what we've seen, what we see every winter is there's other viruses that are like around flu, RSV, you know, those kinds of things. And they make a lot of people sick. Now, now that we've had all these masks on all the time and we've been gelling our hands to the point where our skin's falling off, uh, literally, we're not seeing it, right? right? My hospital normally is full with babies with RSV, right? We're not seeing it this season because people have kept these hygienic measures with the masks, with their hand hygiene, and it means that we can drive down viral transmission in the community, and that is the way to get rid of these aberrant mutants as well. And one, one other, because you partly mentioned the last one of the last two questions I was going to ask you, which is about messaging about the vaccine. And I might circle back to it for just one other moment. But what what would you say about um, where this virus can be picked up in the beginning, at least as I remember it? There were reports out saying you can get the vaccine, the virus from, say, a piece of mail, possibly, or stainless steel. Um, how true or false is any of that? Yeah, so it's, it's a good point because there was a paper just, I think I saw it in the last couple of days, where they looked at the, the likelihood to pick up the virus if you had someone sneeze and cough on you as opposed to you're touching, let's say you're in the bus and you're touching, you know, on the under, in the in the metro, or so you're touching a rail. So the the risk of transmission from surfaces is incredibly low. So you don't need to worry about your takeaway coming in your box to the house, right? You should always wash your hands before you eat, but probably more so because you've poked your nose before you put into your food, right? So uh, not you, but, you know, that's what people do, right? Okay. So, uh, you know, the coughing and sneezing is really the part. Yeah. And uh, that's where we have to, you know, make sure. So it's not the box. It's what you do with your hands. Right. Right. Absolutely. And then, and then, the <laughs> and then the last thing I was going to ask you about again, to come back to, well, one thing is, um, the messaging, um, what would you additionally add uh, in terms of messaging that should be going out to the public in any public, no matter where they are in the world, um, dealing with this? Because we're going to be with the, dealing with this virus for a long time to come, I'm sure. No, you're right. And uh, it will probably be one of those viruses that will hang around. Can you still hear me? You're yes, I can. Me. I'm sorry. I can hear you. Can you see me or hear okay, me? Good. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I can see you fine. So I think the main message is, is we are taking precautions to protect ourselves so we don't get sick, but we also always need to consider if we don't take the precautions, who else are we putting at risk? And it's a question of, you know, you're looking after yourself, but also you're looking after the people around you. And, you know, if you had a, a chance to protect, especially those people that we know have an increased risk of coming to harm, I think you should really reflect on your behavior that, you know, you're much like, less likely to make whatever your child or your teenager sick than you are to make your, your dad or your granddad sick. So, you know, I think if you have a choice there in your behavior, you should always keep a perspective on what you do for yourself, but also what you can offer in terms of your protection to your community, your family. So it goes beyond you, you know. Absolutely. Um, and one last thing, the... London School of um, 
Hygiene and tropical medicine. Hygiene and tropical medicine is <laughs> the <a> terrible word. <laughs> uh, now, yeah, I'm stumbling. I'm stumbling all over the word. And I am very, I'm very hygienic and clean, but I, I stumble over the, the, the words. But uh, I was going to ask you if you just want to say a bit more about the, uh, about the London School uh, or where people can... You talked about the website before, the vaccine website, but if you want to give that information out or any other kind of information that the people listening and watching oh. can use. Oh, yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. thanks for giving me this opportunity because I'm really very, very happy to work in an institution that has been there for over 100 years and has made, I think, one of the leading contributions to global health in terms of its research in terms of its policy impact and in terms of education uh, for anyone anywhere in the world through both face-to-face -face teaching, but our distance learning program is absolutely excellent. And you know the diplomas in tropical medicine, the, the uh, health policy uh, modules, I mean, it's all really fantastic. I wish, you know, when I first came to the London School, I thought, great, I will be in another lecture every night. I can suck up all this great knowledge that's there. You know, of course, then I got so engrossed in my own stuff. I, I might be able to do it. But, you know, go on the website of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. There are some real world leaders in public health. These are the people who are currently sitting on the scientific committees all over the world, and especially in the UK. Whether they always get listened to or not is another question, but you know, here you go. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, we, have, we have seen it, right? Yes. Dr. Fauci, we have the sages from the London School, right? So, um, and they are quite political and they are advocates. And uh, it's a very mixed community of people from everywhere. And I'm really proud to be a member of that community. And you find a lot of good information on the London School website, which, uh, yeah, I don't know, I can't put the website in, but you will see it. And I will certainly will link so to that. Www. Yes, yeah, and I, please do. I that certainly will link to that in the yeah, liner notes. Um, it's really been a wonderful honor to speak with uh, Professor Beata Kampen. Uh, she is the director at the Vaccine Center at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Wow, I got par I got through that without stumbling on the word hygiene. You got it. You got it. <laughs> it's great to have you here, Doctor uh, Professor, as well. Thank you so very much for your time today, the Politocrat. Thanks, Omar. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and thank you for inviting me. You're most welcome. Very special thanks to uh, Professor Beata Kampman. She is the director of the Vaccine Centre at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And really do appreciate her time. She works uh, as a paediatrician. She's a, a paediatrician who works in London at the Vaccine Centre, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she also works on the African continent in the western country of the Gambia. And her work with children uh, is very important work that she and other scientists are doing. And it's just really great to be able to speak with her. And I really uh, thank her so much for her time um, today. And I hope that you, um, you know, enjoyed the interaction and the conversation because it's about information. It's really about information and about education which is so very important, particularly around COVID-19 and around the vaccinations and the issues surrounding that that we discussed. So thank you very much indeed, um, 
Professor Campman. Um, really an honoured uh, honor to have you on. Today's book recommendation for Black History Year, as I call it, is the memoir recently released from Cicely Tyson. It's called Just As I Am. The memoir that she wrote was released literally just a couple of weeks ago or so, just before she passed away last week, a week ago today, as a matter of fact at the age of 96. Cicely Tyson was such a giant, a commanding figure, a pioneer in the film and television world, as well as on stage. On this podcast last week, I did a tribute to her, and she certainly merits a whole lot more tributes, and in fact, has received many of them. Cicely Tyson was one of the great royal figures of entertainment, and her performances were so memorable and indelible. An excellent performer, and a person of pure humbleness of spirit, and someone with a genuine, sincere depth She exuded regalness because that is who she was. The book recommendation once again, Just As I Am, a memoir by Cicely Tyson. There is a kind of process of rescue in which someone who has had dumped on him all of the terrible things that racism can bring about and who makes an effort uh, to deal with it. And even he said, you know, if if you follow through on what happens to you as a black person, you either have to subscribe to violence or profit. Profit. Meaning, if you're going to make it in the world, in the white world, you better give it up. That's right. Your choice is either violence or profit. That's right. Profit meaning upward mobility, conservative, or not even conservative, but certainly you're not going to emphasize your ethnicity. But but you believe in upward mobility. Of course. Right? Absolutely. Of course you do. But I'm not going to give up one drop of melanin in order to get there. I'm not going to erase my race or my gender to get there. I want all of it. I deserve all of it, and we all do. I don't want to be blanded, bleached out in order to participate in this country and walk any hall of power or corridor that I want to. If I'm not good enough, if I'm not smart enough, then that's it. I'll take that hit. Judge me by my deeds. That's right. So my question, as it has been throughout this month of February, is who was that? And when I am saying who is that, I'm referring to the female voice that you heard in that clip. Who was that you just heard from? <laughs> 
Remember, you can tweet me at the popcorn R E E L, or you can get in touch via email at the following email address politocratpod at gmail.com. That's politocratpod at gmail.com. Drop me a line and tell me who that was that you just heard. The female voice. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.